Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. I'm Alex Newman, Associate Editor at the magazine, and I'm filling in this week for Dan Jones. Today, I'm joined down the line by Companies Editor Mark Robinson, uh, back from a knee checkup, I think. Mark, how was it? Um, no real improvement, unfortunately, but that's just a function of age, I'm afraid. Okay, well, a down a downbeat note to begin on. Um, I'm very pleased to say I'm, I'm joined in person by our economics writer, Hermione Taylor, as well. Hello, Hermione. Hello, thank you for having me. And Christopher Akers, who in a big week for Scotland and Scottish politics has come all the way down from Edinburgh to talk the Edinburgh reforms and Iron Brew. So a warm welcome to you as well, Chris. It's great to be here, Alex. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, so as well as Chris's cover feature, which is on the so-called Big Bang 2.0 and what this small galaxy of proposed reforms might mean for the UK's investment landscape, we're going to be talking about the US debt ceiling and talk of a challenge to the hegemony of the uh, US dollar. But we're going to kick off uh, with our result of the week, which is the FTSE 100 engineering group, Smith's. If you look closer, you will see us, says Smith's in its marketing literature. I, I suppose the implication of this is that it's the sort of business that flies under the radar a little bit, Mark. You um, you covered the results. Can you, you just sort of sketch out briefly before we, we, we talk about the results for those who might not know the business, what it does? Oh well, it's um, it's it's probably one of the oldest listed uh, companies in London, or at least it started in about the mid nineteenth century, I, I believe, and then it was a sort of precision watchmaker or timepiece maker. It had a, a long-standing relationship with the uh, the Royal Navy over here as well, uh, and then in the post-war period, it was one of the more it was a, a dominant supplier to of instruments like odometers and uh, measurement instruments like that to the the British automotive industry. It increased its footprint in the aerospace market in this company, both uh, civilian and military. And since the turn of the millennium, that's that's a that's remained a sort of a an important part of the business. But it's now been broken up into four distinct uh, division. Um, I think the largest might be Smith's Detection. And you've you've um, been subject to their products, whether you like it or not, because if you're going in and out of most airports through the world, the security scanners, uh, a lot of these are made by uh, the detection unit. And then we've got to, uh, John Crane as well, which um, produces uh, systems process uh, technology for things like the oil and gas, chemical and pharma industries. Uh, Smith's in, Interconnect, that's uh, a producer of electronic components and subsystems. A lot of work there through uh, OEMs as well. And uh, the other smaller part of the business is uh, the uh, Flextex uh, um, engineering components. And, and that's that's to do with uh, heat and uh, fluid transference and, and gas as well. So it's it's a broad-based engineering firm. I used to get in, in in a bit of strife when I first covered them and going back a few years as well because I used to uh, refer to it as a conglomerate and uh, it, it it isn't in the strictest uh, sense of the word now. And it's it's more it's a more focused business now because for about um 
I think for the longest period, uh, two or three years, it was trying to hive off uh, its medical division, which didn't didn't sort of quite fit in with those businesses I've just outlined there. That was a, a process which put a, a major strain on on management as well. It was an under underperforming part of the business. You know, the margins uh, the margins were fairly slack by comparison. That's gone now. I think that went at the beginning of uh, 2022, and a lot of those funds generated by that are being returned via um, share buybacks too. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got lots of disparate uh, businesses here, even though there's, you know, as you, you alluded to, there's, there's a bit more uh, of a, jo- a joined up thinking to the business than there, there has been in the past. I mean, the first half numbers were out last Friday, showed record growth. Uh, look like across all the divisions so um so you know whatever these different plates are they're they're all spinning at the same time what's what's kind of driving earnings or been the the biggest source of of upside for the business um of late well i i think i think the detection business um performed very well as did john crane uh with, with detection obviously that's a bit of a um a recovery story too because uh a lot of the volumes linked to that technology uh, dissipated almost overnight with the lockdowns. I mean, obviously, you know, they're, they're, there's a major correlation there to the civil aviation industry. And, of course, when that when that ground to a halt, uh, as did a lot of um, orders, even though, it, even though they, you, you, these tend to be on sort of long-term contractual uh, arrangements... But uh, that was a, a major problem for the business. So we've seen a, a bounce back there. Good, a good year for for John Crane as well. Um, I, I, I guess the main thing, the main thing that uh, the impression that I got just looking at um, industry analysis as well, and after having spoken to the company, it, it's that it's the rate of organic growth which was the most pleasing element. The company. Uh, beat uh, consensus forecasts and management was able to uh, increase guidance for the for the full year. But the main part is that uh, I, I, I think they were looking at a 25% um, increase in, in uh, the value of sales, but this was broken up between, there was obviously inflation played a, a part in that, but a, but a, a high proportion was linked to volume growth as well. And it's that organic growth um, that really pleased the market itself because I mean that's where the, the business has, has struggled in, in years past. So I mean, in, more generally though, would would you expect a business like this to kind of revert to, you know, GDP level, uh, you know, trend growth, or or the, are there elements of the markets they're in which which you know suggest they could be above trend, you know, in real growth markets, or uh, what's what's your what's your thoughts well, there? Obviously, when you when you look at um, when you look at their supply, uh, supplies to uh, original equipment manufacturers, there, there's definitely uh, a correlation there, or, or a wider correlation to aggregate uh, demand in the economy, um, and that held up reasonably well during lockdowns. I, I guess if you're looking at anything that would be above the average rate would be Smith's detection because of the growth in uh, the anticipated growth in civil aviation volumes across the globe. You know, we've seen that, uh, but it's been in recovery mode for two, two and a half years. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think that's the part of the business that you're likely to see that the, um, the, the more outstanding growth rates. 
but but part of the part of the reason why the, the results were so well received as well, apart from that or organic growth, is because um, since you know since they've hived off the, the the medical unit as well, there's been changes at board level, and uh, in the article I I think I alluded to uh, some comments from analysts at Goldman Sachs, which to the effect that. Um, um, I'll quote here, actually, according to the analysts, they're saying it's entering, the company's entering a new growth phase following fundamental changes in the group's leadership strategy and portfolio. So it's more joined up thinking, I guess, uh, a more uh, focused management team because of it's a more streamlined group now and uh, and more focused. So um, it was a pretty good set of figures and... Um, there's nothing to suggest that won't uh, that won't keep on uh, improving through the remainder of this year, and and it's it's not uh, you know overly encumbered with, with debt as well, which is only about seventeen percent of uh, net assets. So the the, the 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 forward rating as well, it doesn't sort of scream value, and I think it's about it's about mid range in terms of uh, uh, market peers, but. Uh, it's it's the forward yields about two point five percent. The forward dividend yields about two point five percent. So we we think it's 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 not a bad sort of um, buy and forget option for your portfolio as well. And um, there we have it. Yeah, and so it's sort of very confident noises from management as well um, on the on the rising order book and uh, lots of talk about organic growth continuing. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I didn't mention that, but yeah, the orders are, are heading in the right direction. Uh, I guess uh, I guess one point to look at uh, in the full year results as well is because they're getting a high proportion of orders in now for from uh, original equipment manufacturers, and that tends to or can have the effect of depressing uh, margins. But we we'll have to analyze that at the end of the year. Okay, so uh, before we wrap up the company section of the podcast uh, this week, I want to briefly touch on full year numbers for uh, AG Bar, uh, which were also out this week. Chris, um, uh, as previously mentioned, you covered uh, the figures uh, this week. What were the what were the big headlines for the uh, the full year to to January? Well, firstly, AG Bar posted some pretty impressive revenue growth. Sales were up eighteen percent in the year, helped by higher prices, some volume growth, and to the strong brand equity AG Bar has with its products. Profits were up 5% as a result of that, but the company also warned about short-term impact on operating margins in the new financial year, and that hit the share price on results day. Margins also struggled in the latest year due to cost pressures, the gross margin and the cash profit margin both fell. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you mentioned there in, in terms of the brands, I mean, you know, as ever with beverage companies but you know it's all about the brands isn't it and what's you know what's uh what's trending well you know at any at any given time uh, you know at a brand or product level what where where's the growth at the moment for uh for ag bar so at, at, at a high level both of the company's main divisions which are soft drinks and cocktail solutions posted some pretty strong sales growth of 16 percent at a brand level rubicon which sells energy sparkling and still drinks with a standout performer its revenues were up by more than 20% and volumes were up by 8%. Um, on, on the cocktail side of things, AG Bar is taking advantage of growth in the market. 
um, on-trade sales at its Funkin brand, the cocktail brand, were up by 23%. Um, sales at the famous Iron Brew, on the other hand, were up by a less impressive 6%. So another point, another point uh, you mentioned is the deposit return scheme in Scotland uh, was cited as having you know this potential impact on consumer purchasing behaviour. Did um, did the company sort of give much more detail on this? And you know, you know, given there sort of similar schemes in place around the world, has there been much uh, sort of analyst uh, chat about about the experience elsewhere? Yeah, so, so for background, the scheme is set to go live in August in Scotland and it will add a 20 pence deposit to alcohol and soft drinks in single-use containers. And the idea is to boost recycling rates so people will get the deposit back when they return the empty container. As you say, many many other countries around the world have some form of deposit return scheme. I think the German system seems to be particularly successful. But there has been a lot of pushback on the scheme from industry I spoke to a, a Scottish whisky consultant and broker called Blair Bowman earlier this year about about the scheme, and he called it the most onerous, most complex deposit return scheme in the world, which isn't good. Uh, AG Bar have said they were well advanced in preparing for the scheme, um, but as you say, they also mentioned it could impact consumer purchasing behaviour. Uh, previously, Investec analysts have also mentioned it could add up to £3 million to AG Bar's annual costs. And I think I think it's worth mentioning as well. There is a lot of stuff on this going on at the moment in the Scottish Parliament with the new um, first minister. So there could be movements on this, either watering it down or even scrapping it, depending on what happens. Yeah, and I suppose customer, you know, behaviour adapts in the long run, doesn't it? You know, there's there's this initial change, or you know, we saw it with the sugar tax as well, and then I suppose behaviours adapt, and you know, brand equity doesn't get diminished just because you know there are there are. Uh, I suppose externalities to consider that we didn't before. Um, just to sort of round out, I mean, AJ, AJ Bar, you know, the balance sheet looks in a pretty good position as well. They're, they've got, an, you know, they're they're in net cash uh, at the moment. Just uh, get a sense from the results what they're planning to do with uh, with the money. Is it about boosting production or adding new brands or or um, upping distributions to shareholders? Yeah, so the, the company has about eight million pounds of net cash on the balance sheet now. Um, I spoke to Chief Executive Roger White for the article and he said, while the focus is still on organic growth, the board is open to, to looking at more acquisition opportunities given the, the cash position. Um, and just for background, it made two acquisitions in the latest year of a uh, Biss Drinks and an oat milk company. So getting involved in different areas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I mean, I definitely see lots of uh, school kids near where I live drinking the boost drink. I mean, that's not going to see an endorsement of the product or a good thing, but um, yeah, they love it. Um, okay, well, uh, from coming all to Washington uh, and to our economics writer, Hermione Taylor, who's been following two stories that have been rumbling on in the background while everyone's been fretting about the US banking system. Um, both very large and complex topics, somewhat connected, um, but let's break them down in turn. Um, Hermione, let's let's start with uh, the dollar uh, or the dollar's place in the world as, as as the reserve currency. Before we sort of jump into to, you know geopolitics and the thornier questions about currency flows and everything, why is the dollar so important? 
um, to investors? I mean, I think we've had a really good example recently. Um, following the banking sector turmoil that we've seen, the Bank of England and five other central banks actually announced a coordinated effort to try and keep credit flowing. And they did this by boosting the flow of US dollars through the financial system using liquidity swaps, which meant this means that they can exchange US dollars daily instead of weekly until the end of April. And I think this really shows that the dollar is at the heart of the financial system. Aside from that, we've got some pretty striking facts as well. So the US dollar is involved in 90% of all foreign exchange transactions and almost half of world trade. And dollar assets make up 60% of the world's currency reserves. Mm. So, I mean, it, it backstops everything. It's involved in every trade. And yet, you know, I suppose it's just the virtue of being the top dog, isn't it? You know, it's forever draws scrutiny and predictions of its demise. I mean, what's what's the, you know, new now or the latest... Uh, the latest sort of spark of, of concern about dollars, the dollar's place? I mean, as you say, there's always talk about international rivals. I, I think until now it probably would have been the euro, but it's a pretty distant second place. So that's only about 20% of global currency reserves. Um, the latest upstart is uh, people are talking about something called a petro yuan, which is based on this idea that if we see more trade between China and Russia and Saudi Arabia, we could actually end up seeing the energy trade sort of de-dollarized. I think that this currently looks quite overblown because trade between China and Russia and the Middle East is still tiny as a proportion of global trade. Um, and economists think that for now, the bulk of trade is between sort of US-aligned countries. So it will probably continue to be denominated in dollars as a, as a result. Mark, um, you mean your conspiratorial leanings and familiarity of the with the oil market make you well-placed to chime in on this, I suspect? What's your, what's your take on the rise of the petro? yuan or non-rise as it may be well we've been hearing about this for well over a, a decade now as well and um as hermione says i mean the, the dollar's position uh seems unassailable uh, given uh, its its importance and its volumes over the global trade but uh, they would have probably said the same thing about sterling at one point uh, we shouldn't forget and i, I guess the the most interesting point was this week is that, and one that wasn't really discussed that much, was between the uh, recent meeting between Xi and uh, and Vladimir Putin as well. Uh, there was discussion over um, reverting to uh, yuan-backed uh, oil trades in the global market, and of course um, that takes on an added significance. Uh, when it as it, as it seems that uh, Saudi Arabia are, uh, are generally quite sympathetic to that trade as well, along with uh, Iran, uh, so it would be interesting to see what would happen if uh, a significant amount of oil was, was traded around the world in anything other than the dollar. Uh, it has um, quite uh, significant geopolitical implications as well. Uh, the reason why the U.S. is uh, enabled, well, it's, it's, I was going to say allowed, but the reason why the U.S. persistently runs these huge deficits is, be, is because of the, the dollar's status uh, as the principal reserve currency in the world. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, we might be talking about the same thing two or three years down the track. Mm. Who can say? Yeah, I suppose, you know, another story seen this week is or, or questions are rising a little bit about the... Um, China's one one belt one road initiative, and I suppose questions there are over you know the the, the, the country's ability to um, to backstop large finance uh, uh, large large infrastructure projects uh, you know is is in the mix I suppose on on how they're seen as a as, as a as a you know alternative state to the the US. Um, what about digital currencies, Hermione? I know I know 
you've you've been looking at this um, quite closely. Are they more of a tangible threat and how could that threat sort of manifest itself? I mean, I think this is a really interesting one. I think in theory they could be. So international payments do tend to be quite clunky at the moment, so quite expensive. And I think that there's definitely scope for a sort of digital payment system to challenge the dollar and challenge our current way of doing things. But I think that it's more likely that this would come from a central bank digital currency, which is probably sort of less exciting than it sounds. So this wouldn't be a new kind of speculative token. It would just be a digital form of the notes and coins that central banks already use. Um, With the dollar, we've got this idea called network effects, which basically says that there isn't much incentive for any central banks to change their reserves unless they think that another currency would offer them greater liquidity. And as we saw, you know, with the kind of fallout from the banking turmoil, central banks work together to keep credit flowing. So I think that they'd only go for a new currency if other central banks were switching too, which is realistically a, a really big barrier for a new currency to overcome. So maybe sort of the most likely outcome would be that a digital dollar could kind of replace the dollar as we use it now. And we've got some economists thinking that if we saw a kind of central bank dollar kick off, um, that could actually be even more widely used than the normal dollar is today. Wow. So one expects the Fed is going to be, you know, front and centre of any moves to a... Yeah, it's surprisingly widespread. There are actually 114 countries looking at central bank digital currencies now. So even if it's at the kind of early stages, I think most countries are thinking that this is something that, you know, they're looking to develop. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I mean, part of the reason for, you know, all all this speculation, I I imagine in in the background is is the somewhat unnerving question, which comes up again and again, uh, of the possibility of the US, you know, political dysfunction leading to sovereign default. Um, how might this happen? You've you've also written about this for the magazine this week, um, uh, vis-a-vis you know the debt ceiling not getting passed. What's the uh, yeah? Talk us yeah, <laughs> talk us through well, the, the the scary implications. So, well, the US is is unusual in that it has a fixed debt ceiling. So, in the UK, we've got sort of more flexible fiscal rules that we use. But the US is coming up against this debt ceiling now and it's going to need to be raised if the government's going to meet its existing obligations. If it if it isn't raised, um, the government's going to approach this thing called the X date, which is basically the day that it can no longer pay for things. And analysts think that this will probably be around August, but estimates kind of range from June to September. Now, if the US government couldn't meet its obligations, it would basically have to declare a, def- a default, which would be very bad news for the dollar. Um, economists think that the dollar, the value of the dollar would plummet and um, there's even some speculation that the shock of this would sort of force the dollar to, to lose its status as a dominant currency. I think it's worth pointing out that it's very, very unlikely. Um, there's going to be desire on all sides to avoid this kind of turmoil um, and some agreement will probably be reached. I think it's a story that's worth keeping an eye on because um, it's possible that any deal to raise the debt ceiling could come with some sort of austerity measures, which could be bad news for stocks that are exposed to government spending. And the uncertainty could definitely rattle markets in the meantime. Um, I've seen some comments today from um, Goldman Sachs and they think that this um, debt ceiling standoff could be nearly as disruptive as the two- 2011 standoff, which was a pretty a pretty close call. Right. OK. We'll certainly want to watch and fret about in the, in the months uh, yes. ahead. Um, brilliant. Thanks, Hermione. Um, OK, so lastly, we're going we're gonna to move from the nexus of US finance and politics to, I suppose, what passes for the UK equivalent, which is the uh, the Edinburgh reforms. Um, um, Chris, you, you've written the, the cover feature this week, um, which is on you know this very wide-ranging subject of city reform and the implications for investment in the UK. So there's a lot to untangle. Um, I suppose the backdrop 
to a lot of what we've been writing and, uh, about in the magazine and talking about in this podcast in recent weeks has been the you know the seeming decline in the attractiveness of, of London for business businesses looking to list, um, uh, which which you know sort of arguably means we're we're coming at this from a, a position of uh, well not necessarily weakness but it's 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 often framed as in a, a as the chance to revitalise the city and and, and the listing rules. Uh, able to that able to improve all of that. Can you sort of just start by bringing listeners up to speed, sketching out what the Edinburgh reforms are? You know, if, if that's not too big a big an ask in one in one question. So the Edinburgh reforms refer to a package of over thirty financial services measures, which the Chancellor set out in December last year in Edinburgh. Hence the name. And and as you say, the background to this is that London seems to have become less competitive against other financial centres like New York. Technology and high-growth companies like we saw with Arm recently are choosing to list in the US, while companies that are already listed in London, uh, like Flutter Entertainment, are now thinking about listing overseas as well. Um, UK pension investment in domestic equities has relatively plummeted over the decades too. So the Edinburgh reforms are really fundamentally an attempt to reboost the city um, as the government tries to create a new post-Brexit framework for UK financial services. They build upon a lot of reviews that have happened over the last few years um, of financial services um, policy. They also build upon um, legislation going through Parliament at the moment, like the Financial Services and Markets Bill, which revokes EU law um, and the planned reforms to insurance sector capital rules. But they also contain a lot of new proposals, like a review of UK investment research, a proposal for Bank of England digital currency, like Hermione was just discussing, and a trial for a new intermittent trading venue. So there's a lot, a lot going on. <laughs> it's kind of everything, really. Um, I mean, the proposals, you know, of which there are many, have drawn a lot of hot takes, as you'd kind of expect. But um, among them, I saw was Sam Woods, who's the the head of the PRA, saying, um, you know, the, some of the some of these changes could raise risk in the system. And I suppose it's also interesting that the reforms are being billed as Big Bang 2.0, which kind of conveniently forgets that about 20 years after the Big Bang one. You know, we had this blow up in the UK banking system, which some people put down to the deregulation, which um, entailed from from those reforms in the eighties. Um, I mean, again, and, and then we've also got this, you know, backdrop of sudden convulsion in the bond markets and, and global banking markets. Kind of feels like an inauspicious time in a way, doesn't it, for to be talking about taking on risk? You know, granted with all the opportunities that uh, the, the government wants to. Uh, find in a sort of post-Brexit world. Um, is the recent sort of drama likely to dampen the rhetoric, do you think, in, a, in any way, or, or likely policy? Yeah, the, the risk element is quite interesting. So the Sam Woods quote you mentioned was to do with the, the Solvency II reforms, um, which is the EU directive, which is being repealed around insurance uh, capital rules. Although on that, the insurance sector has welcomed the proposals um, more broadly, which is quite interesting. Um, on banking, there has been criticism of proposals um, in the sense that they, they could be seen as watering down uh, credit crisis rules. So the government is planning to um, 
change the ring fencing regime for for UK banks. So current rules um, mean that banks with more than 25 billion of retail deposits have to separate their retail and investment banking arms. um, And the government wants to change that. So it wants to take banks without major investment banking operations completely out of that regime. And it's planning to consult on raising the deposit threshold to 35 billion. It's also hoping to scrap the EU law on capping banker bonuses. Um, but as you say, given given what's going on with the banking sector at the moment, it wouldn't be surprising if, if things were delayed or, or even watered down. We'll have to wait and see on that. You, you, you quote one analyst in, in the in the piece. Uh, he talks about the you know the impact being marginal potentially on on UK life insurers who. I suppose some some investors and and market watchers had been anticipating would be big beneficiaries of the of the you know revision to solvency too, um, but the analyst said that at the same time that this might be broadly positive for the UK economy. That I mean the biggest detail in there appears to be that you know this hundred billion pounds of of capital might be unlocked for UK bound investment. Is that you know is that a, is that a tangible? Um, you know, is, is that a tangible figure you, you think, or you know, what's this likely to mean for for investors? I think it is. So, the whole, the whole idea behind the change to solvency two is trying to sort of incentivize UK investment in, in longer term illiquid assets, like in UK infrastructure. I think Legal in general said that they anticipate investing a lot more in, in UK based assets as as a result of the, the solvency two reform. But, but but as you say, the Deutsche Bank analyst I, I spoke to thinks it will be sort of marginally beneficial to these these companies, but will bring greater benefits to the wider UK economy. Um, and and then you know there's some other reforms in there which I was sort of previously unaware that people are talking about. You know things like stamp duty, change to removal of stamp duty, uh, lowering the threshold for corporate bond purchases. Is this you know are these any of these rule changes? on the immediate horizon or where are we with the kind of the, the consultation on on a lot of this so i think it's important to say on those two points the Edinburgh reforms don't see anything specifically on those that there are more things that industry are calling for so on, on stamp duty uh, the uk shareholders association said that stamp duty reserve tax which investors pay in the uk when they buy shares is a drag on liquidity and makes london less competitive against foreign markets um, on corporate bonds, there's a working group that is currently lobbying the Treasury on simplifying disclosure requirements um, for new bond issues to try and get more private investors involved in the market. Um, so there, there is lobbying going on behind the scenes on, on these issues. Um, but again, we'll have to see what happens with those. So in terms of um, pension reforms, Chris, there are some potential winners out there, which you, you kind of highlight in the piece. What are the, what are the sectors there that... that, um, that, that pension fund managers might be looking at a little a little more closely? So central to the whole discussion really around the Edinburgh reforms is incentivising UK pension schemes to invest more in, in longer term assets. Uh, the government is trying to do this through the reform of Solvency 2 and, and also supporting greater consolidation of, of pension schemes. Um, it also hopes to incentivise more domestic UK investment in private equity and venture capital through these pension reforms. Yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds like it's all going to play out, uh, possibly in a over a time scale of years um, rather than uh, weeks or months. But um, we will be uh, following them closely. Um, 
that's about all we have time for um, this week. Thanks um, to Chris, Hermione and Mark uh, for your insight today uh, and to John Rogers and, and Madeline Apthorpe for producing this week's podcast. Um, quick shout out to my brother as well, who I recently found out listens to every podcast. Uh, and Thank you, uh, if you're not my brother, uh, and spending half an hour with us um, again. Dan will be back in the chair next week uh, when I believe we'll be talking banks once more, among other things. So until then, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.